I wonder what is the most powerful thing that you've ever experienced? What's the most power that you've ever been in the presence of? Have you considered that before? Is it a massive waterfall? Millions of gallons of water just crashing into a pool? Or perhaps it's, it's a crushing wave that you've seen. Watched it as it crested and crashed down. Or maybe a forceful hurricane. You've wondered if you could stand in the power of the winds that blew left and right, around and around. Or maybe it's an explosive volcano erupting with all the power under the earth, throwing rock miles upon miles. Or maybe it's a fierce lion's roar. Or maybe you've been in a lightning storm and seen the power of the heavens unleashed and felt the fear of the threat, of the danger that that power represented. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter nine. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is my friend Jess, and this is Reed. Everybody say, hey, Reed. He's a cutie. Big brown eyes. I asked Jess if she would bring Reed up. He's about, you said five months, right? Yeah, about five months. I asked her if she'd bring Reed up because I thought we needed to see Reed because he's a cutie. But for more reason than that, the most powerful thing that any person in all of human history has encountered is not a waterfall or a canyon or a lightning storm. It's not a volcano erupting. It's an infant child in a manger who is mighty God. This is what the most powerful thing in the universe has ever looked like. The might and the power and the majesty of God wrapped in the form of an infant. 
as we examine the names of Jesus that Isaiah called him 750 years before he was ever born, we saw two weeks ago that he is called Wonderful Counselor, a supernaturally wise counselor. And today, we want to examine and think about what it means that this little one, not this little one, but the little one in the manger was mighty God. Let's pray that God would give us wisdom and understanding as we examine his word today, shall we? Pray with me. Our Father, today we get to declare good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. For there was born to us in the city of David a Savior who was and is Christ the Lord. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. We ask that you would give us understanding. Open our eyes that we might see. Help us not to resist the implications of that for us. For those of us who do not believe, the implications that we would believe. For those of us who believe, the implications that we would give our very lives. Every last shred of our love and affection and attention and effort to knowing and serving this mighty God. So help us to do so. We are your people. We come underneath your authority gladly. We give ourselves to you today. Teach us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as we see the names of Jesus that Isaiah declares to us, we focus on this idea that he is mighty God today. And the question I want us to ask and see if we can't answer is what does it mean to come to Jesus as mighty God? What does that mean? And so we need to sort of answer two questions to answer that question. The first is what do the scriptures mean when they call God mighty? When the scriptures talk about the might of God, what do they talk about? Let's understand that. And then let's ask, what are the implications when that might is applied to the person of Jesus for us? When we see that the might of God as it is discussed then applies itself to Jesus, how shall we come to him? How shall we relate to him? I'm gonna offer a few thoughts along those lines. But we're gonna start with the first question, which is what does the scripture mean when it calls God mighty? Now we're gonna move through a number of texts here, but essentially... If you were to grab a concordance, which is a tool that helps you find things in the Bible about where certain things are talked about, if you were to grab one of those and say, well, where am I going to find the might or the power of God talked about, and you were to go through every scripture talking about the might or power of God, you would notice a few themes. There's a handful of things that are discussed regularly over and over again when the might of God is talked about and how he uses that might. To what end? And I want to give you two of those today, which are probably the most prominent as you look through the scriptures. The first is that when the scriptures call God mighty, they are saying that he creates, rules, and sustains the universe. He creates, rules, and sustains the universe. Again and again, the might of God is talked about as displayed in his ability to create, to rule, and to sustain all created things. The second thing is that God loves to use his might to deliver people, to deliver and to redeem. That he is powerful and we are powerless 
And it is his joy again and again to declare, I use my might to save. I use my might to deliver from oppression. I use my might to raise up from the ground and set you in places, in high places of honor. He loves to deliver. So let's look at those two things together, shall we? When the might of God is discussed, what does it mean that that might is often seen as his power to create, to rule, and to sustain? That's our first thing. So when we say he creates, we mean simply this. Probably no mystery, right? That everything exists that does exist exists because he made it. There is nothing that exists that was not made by God. There is not a secondary creator. There is not some other power or entity that has caused something that exists to come into existence, that he is the creator of all things that exist. Listen to how Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 17 and 18 talk about it. Jeremiah says, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And then the conclusion that comes from that, nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. What Jeremiah tells us is that as creator, God is not part of his creation. (coughs) Excuse me. One sec. He's the creator, but I can't get a sentence out. See, he's powerful. We are (coughs) not. As creator, God stands apart from his creation. He makes it. But then did you see the conclusion that Jeremiah drew as he's talking in Jeremiah chapter 32? Ah, Lord God, you by your power, by your might, you've created everything that exists, the heavens and the earth. And then what does he say next? Nothing is too hard for you. The declaration that Jeremiah makes to us is that as creator, from his might, he has created. From nothing, he has made everything. And a God who can do that is a God for whom nothing is too difficult. I wonder if some of us, that's a good reminder for us in this season. What difficulty are you facing? What challenge what thing that is disturbing or rest, causing wrestling? What brokenness? What, what deflating thing? And to be reminded that our God, who has made the heavens and the earth because he simply willed it to be, he needed no help. He did not call on an army of angels and say, help me out, I don't know how to make this. He, in his own power and his own person, created all things, the tiniest blade of grass to the greatest mountain, to the planets he flung into the sky, to the stars that shine across light years of the heavens, he made them himself. Nothing is too hard for you, O God. That seems like the right conclusion to draw. The second thing we see when the might of God is discussed is that he doesn't just make everything as the creator. He rules over it with perfect power. He did not create a universe and a world and people and place us here and then say, good luck. 
and back away from us. He has been and always will be ruling over the universe he made. Now there's a couple things that when we talk about the rule of God from his might that we see. So let's look at a couple of those, all right? He creates, he rules. How does the scripture talk about his rule? Well, it says that nothing threatens his power. His rule is so complete and so perfect. He is so sovereign that there is no other entity or power that ever rises to the level of being even an inkling of a threat to him. If you find yourself worked up about worldly powers, remember they are no threat to our king. If you find yourself worked up about a circumstance or a situation that seems terrible or difficult, remember that our king reigns on the throne. His rule is never threatened. That's the way the scriptures talk. Now listen, God does things and we do not understand why he does them. There are difficult and wicked things that take place in the earth and we wonder why God has not prevented and we wonder why he has not stopped them. And yet God does not say, I'm sorry, I couldn't do it. Remember as he says to Job, where were you when I set the heavens in motion? Where were you when I founded the earth? His power is never under threat Psalm 89, verses eight through 11, put it this way. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scatter your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Now let me just give you the flow of that here real quick in case you missed it. What he's declaring is when he talks about the waves, he's talking about the nature and all that is in the world. And he says, you still them. They submit to you. You rule over them. And then when he talks about Rahab, he's talking about a nation of people who have rebelled against God. And he's giving them the nickname Rahab. And what he's saying is, and they who rebelled against you, you ruled over them as well. They did not threaten your power for one moment. In other words, nothing in nature and no nation threatens the power of God. That's what Psalm 89 is teaching us. You founded them and you rule over them with perfect sovereignty. He also rules in his might and we are, what is declared to us about that is that he is to be obeyed. That's what his rule means. He doesn't just rule sovereignly over the events of history and the nations and the stars and the moon and the sun and the seas. He is also, because he rules in his might, he is to be obeyed. That is the right response of people to a creator God who creates and then rules. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 21. And it's a little bit of a longer section, but I really want you to hear it now. In the law of God, in the book of Deuteronomy, we find these words. And now Israel, talking to the people of God under the old covenant, the nation that he chose, through whom he would bring the savior of the world, so that all tribes and nations and tongues might become, have opportunity to become reconciled to him. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for good, for your good. So why must we obey? That's what he's just said. You need to obey and love the Lord your God. Verse 14, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. In other words, he's saying, put away evil and walk in righteousness. And be no longer stubborn. That's a good reminder for some of us. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. How does he describe him? The great, the what? Can you see it? The mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And now he's going to give a specific way that we must obey him. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Now, we could spend a long time unpacking. There's a beautiful call to specific acts of obedience, in particular for those who are vulnerable people, widows, orphans, sojourners in the land. But what I want you to hear most from that text that I just read to you is that he rules, and because he rules, he is to be obeyed. That is the call of Deuteronomy chapter 10, that that's the right response of people to his rule. Now, the third thing that we see in his ruling is going back to Jeremiah chapter 32. I read to you verse 17 and 18, and I stopped short because I wanted to say verse 19. Now listen to what verse 19 says. Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. What Jeremiah is saying there is that he rules because he is mighty. He rules. And what you need to know about that is that he doesn't need to collect counsel from anybody else to figure out what to do in his rule. He is not in the business of consulting other people, God is not, to figure out what to do in his ruling. I'm not sure what to do here. Would you tell me? He doesn't come to you as you pray and say, I really don't know how to lead your life forward or what direction to give you. Could you give me some consultation so that I could have the wisdom that I need to understand to how to lead your life and to rule over you? God lacks no knowledge. He understands every inclination of every human heart. He knows our leanings, our wrestlings, our predispositions. He knows every shred of information that has ever been conveyed in all the history of the world. He knows it all, and he makes perfect decisions with it. God never hymns and haws over a decision that he makes in his might. He never thinks, did I do that right? Maybe I was a little off there. That's how we operate because we have imperfect knowledge and imperfect power, but God does not operate that way. In his might, he rules, and he rules with perfect knowledge and perfect precision and application of that knowledge. We can say much more there, but he creates, 
He rules, and now, in his might, God sustains. Listen to what, this is a short one. When we say he sustains, in the same way that we said everything that exists, exists because he made it, that's him creating in his might. Now we see that he sustains. Everything that exists continues to exist because he sustains it, because he continues to will that it exists. This is what Nehemiah chapter nine, verse six says. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, so that's his creating, and look what he says next, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So when the might of God is discussed, it is discussed as his ability to create, to rule, and to sustain all created things. That's pretty impressive power, isn't it? Now listen, the second theme that we see again and again when the might of God is discussed, and we're, we're sticking to the Old Testament here, and I'll show you why in a minute. The second thing that we see is that he delivers, that God loves to use his power on behalf of the powerless. We just saw it in Deuteronomy chapter 10, didn't we? He said, I'm mighty, and I deliver I delivered you, Israel. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You were slaves. You were foreigners. And I brought you out. And I protected you. And I provided for you. Therefore, you should do that for others. You love the sojourner the way I loved you who were sojourners. He loves to use his power to deliver people in need. Psalm 106, verse 6 through 8 says this. Both we and our fathers have sinned, talking about the nation of Israel, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. In other words, they're not a deserving people. And then verse seven, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known, what? His mighty power. Do you see his might again there? When the might of God is discussed, and we could go, this is one I could give you verse after verse after verse out there Old Testament. If you've ever read through your Old Testament, you'll notice that when he's talking to the nation of Israel, one of the things he says again and again is, I'm the God who delivered you out of Egypt. I'm the God in my power. I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I'm the one who delivered you out of slavery in Egypt. It's almost as if he doesn't want them to forget that. Saying, this is how my might has been seen. I deliver. And that same God who delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt continues to deliver people who are in need again and again and again. People who are oppressed. People who are downtrodden. He loves to use his might to deliver. And he doesn't just do it for deserving people. Praise God, because not a one of us is deserving. He does it for undeserving people. Now, Let's go to our second question. That's a, that's a summary, if you will, of how the might of God is spoken about. And now let's ask the question, okay, if that's how the might of God, if that's what it means, that God is mighty, then what does it mean when we apply that title to Jesus? When Isaiah goes out of his way to say, think of all the names he could have ascribed to Jesus. There's plenty of them throughout scripture. And Isaiah, with great intentionality, says he is wonderful counselor. And then he says, he is mighty God. What does it mean? So let's, three things. 
Three things. The first is that what Isaiah means to do is he means to tell you and I that we are to apply everything that we just learned about the might of God to the baby in the manger. If you and I were able to travel back in time, we'd probably need to change our clothes so we wouldn't stand out too much. And if we were able to make our way with the shepherds out of the field and walk through the streets of Bethlehem and follow the star and come upon the manger, and if we were able to, to walk in and be received by Mary and Joseph, and if we were to lean over and look into the straw and see the baby lying there and look into his eyes, at that moment, we would be looking into the eyes of the one who created everything that exists. We would be looking into the eyes of the one who rules with perfect power over all the universe even while lying there as an infant. We would be looking into the eyes of the one who sustains the very life we have even as we watch him need a mother to care for him and swaddle him. He, in that moment, is sustaining me. He is very God of very God. True light of true light ruling with perfect power, never laying down or relinquishing one bit of his divinity even while taking on full humanity, the child in the manger, everything that we said about the creating, ruling, sustaining, delivering power of God applies to Jesus. And listen, I kept this in the Old Testament, here's why, because I want you to see how the New Testament carries the story forward. Everything that the might of God has declared in Deuteronomy and in Nehemiah and in Jeremiah. Now listen to how those same things are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. We read John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, we heard in John 1 verse 3 that by him all things were created and without him nothing was created that was created. He is the creator, John tells us, this baby in the manger. And Colossians 1.17 tells us that he rules over all creation. When it says in 1.17 that he is before all things, it doesn't just mean that he's eternal and that he pre-existed all created things. It means to say he has the first place among all things. He rules over them as the one who is sovereign, as the one who is the king, as the one who is worthy of the praise of all those things because he made them and created them and now he rules over them he is before all things therefore he is preeminent Colossians says and then we find that he doesn't just create and he doesn't just rule but that Jesus himself is the one sustaining all living things Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power I want you to understand what the author of Hebrews is saying there. Let's just pause for a moment because I don't think you're astounded enough. He, by the very word that he speaks, causes everything that exists to continue to exist without the word of his power bringing it into existence and continuing to speak that it shall exist. Everything would break up and float off and burn up and go away. 
He sustains the universe by the word of his power. Somebody might want to say amen. All right. And he is the one who delivers. The might of God in the infant child means that he is the one who has come to deliver us. Now, that leads us to our second implication. What does it mean that Jesus is mighty God? Well, first, it means that all the things that we see throughout the entire Old Testament about God's might and how it's used are true of Jesus. Then the second thing that we see that it means is that the deliverance that we need is more than physical. So throughout the Old Testament, when God's might is used to deliver, most of the time, it is, ta- it is a physical kind of deliverance. It's the nation of Israel who's enslaved in Egypt and they need to be delivered. Or it's a prophet or it's a, it's a king who needs to be delivered. Or it's a, a sojourner and a widow and an orphan who's vulnerable and they need to be delivered in an earthly way. It's Ruth who loses her husband and who needs a kinsman redeemer to provide for her and protect her and to invite her into a family again and again and again. There's this human level deliverance. But here's what I want you to see. If what Isaiah is saying is that the baby in the manger is mighty God, then what he's saying is the deliverance that you and I need is a deliverance that is more than physical. It's supernatural and spiritual. There is something that has taken hold of our hearts and our minds that must be broken and crushed and from which we must be delivered. Can I ask you, friends, who are not followers of Jesus, who are joining us today, to pay particular attention to this? Because if the coming of Jesus into the world means anything, I think perhaps first it means that you and I should recognize that something is really wrong if God has to come into the world to fix it. If that's what's required. No human hero is enough. You understand that when Isaiah is making this list of things, the one that stands out as the odd name is mighty God. Because all the other terms could be applied to a human hero. Right? You could say wonderful counselor. Yes, there's going to be some human that's going to be really wise. And that's gonna, we're going to receive counsel from that person. You could say they're going to be maybe not an everlasting father, but you could at least symbolically talk about him as this father that is always your father. All these other terms can be applied to a human hero. But when Isaiah stops and he says, he is mighty God, he is declaring something that everyone's attention would stop and rest on. Because what he's saying is he is divine. And one of the things that means, friends, is that there is something wrong that only God can fix. Not enough. No, no human can give the kind of deliverance. And listen, the kind of deliverance we talked about for the widow, for the orphan, for the sojourner, the deliverance of kings, the deliverance of, of oppressed peoples and nations that we see throughout the Old Testament, all those things ultimately God controls, but a human hero can be used in those capacities. But what if our problem is a problem of the heart? What if sin and death and the devil have sunk their fangs into our heart? And the venom of sin has made our hearts cold and dead. And then he has wrapped his coils around those very hearts to squeeze the life out of them and to lay hold of them. 
then mighty God must come to work a deliverance whereby he pulls the fangs out of our hearts and unwraps the coils of the serpent and says, I will deliver you from the oppression of sin. I will deliver you from the oppression of death. I will deliver you from the oppression of the devil. That's why Jesus in Luke chapter four said, I've come to declare liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, to, set at, to declare the year of the Lord's favor Right? He's talking about his mission and saying, I have come to bring a level and a kind of deliverance that you may not even know you need. He is the one who delivers. And then the third thing that calling Jesus mighty God perhaps means for us, going back to Isaiah chapter nine, is that it means we have to embrace humility and vulnerability if we want God's work to be done through us. Now here's what I mean by this. You can imagine you're reading through Isaiah nine. Let's say it's your first time to read through it. And you've never, which may be the case for some of you today. And you're reading through it and you're hearing people who walked in darkness are gonna receive a great light. And then as a result, there's gonna be this joy. You're gonna cause them to rejoice, he says, as with joy at the harvest. In other words, like the time of year that you have the most joy. You're gonna have this great joy. Well, how is that gonna be brought about? It's going to be brought about through deliverance from these, there's gonna be no more war. He says the, the boots of the battle tumult, the robes covered in blood. In other words, the things that war bring about. I'm gonna make those stop. I'm gonna stop the oppression. I'm gonna stop the pain. I'm gonna put it all to an end. And you would think then that the next phrase would probably be, okay, I'm gonna have joy, I'm gonna have light, and I'm gonna have those because he's gonna put an end to all this difficulty and oppression and damage. How's he gonna do it? Well, that war conversation or talk makes it sound like because I'm gonna come in my might and I'm gonna strike down the oppressor. That's what you would expect him to say, yes? That's the normal progression. What does he say? That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I'm gonna come in my might and I'm gonna destroy my enemy. For unto us a child is born. It's the most insane next sentence. It's not the thing you would ever expect to be written. In other words, how am I gonna overcome this oppression so that you have joy and light? I'm gonna send a baby into the world. I'm gonna send the most humble and the most vulnerable of beings into the world in order to bring about this deliverance. And do you know what that means? It means that God must be aiming not just to destroy his enemies, but to turn his enemies into his friends. And if we wanna join God in the work of turning his enemies into his friends, then we have to embrace what he did. And what he did was make them his friends by becoming humble and vulnerable Mighty God humbled himself and embraced the vulnerability of death. And so friends, listen, whatever difficulty is present in your world and your relationships, here's what I promise you. Going after those things with worldly expressions of power, like conquering and being loud and demanding 
They'll only bring further brokenness. You can crush enemies that way, but you cannot turn enemies into friends of God. The only way to join God in his work of turning his enemies into his friends is to do what he did, and that is to humble yourself and to make yourself vulnerable where you can be harmed. It's the only way if you want to join him in his work. Whatever difficulty is in your marriage right now, I promise exercising power ain't gonna work. But a healthy dose of humility and vulnerability sure goes a long way. Whatever difficulty at work, whatever you see going on at a national level in our world right now, the answer for Christians is always humility and vulnerability. Always, without exception. Humility and vulnerability. That's how enemies of God become friends of God. And that is the work of God. Praise him. So friends, we're gonna come to the table of the Lord now. And it's a fitting day as we think about his humility and vulnerability, exercising his might, that we also think about the fact that his death always was intended and planned, his birth, sorry, was always intended and planned to, to lead to his death. That he was born to go to the cross. He was born to sacrifice himself. The ultimate expression of humility and vulnerability. Would we agree? So church families, we come to the table. Let me invite the servers to come and we'll receive the elements together here in just a moment. And as we do so, let me give just a couple words here. Number one is... Um, you know, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're always instructed to weigh our lives, to let the Lord examine us in this time. We don't just take the elements as a tradition. Uh, we take them because Christ commanded us to remember his death and his resurrection when we gather. And in remembering that, he says, I want you to ask the Lord where he's calling you to greater obedience. And so my encouragement today is, church family, let's use this as a time to consider where we haven't been operating in humility when we haven't been expressing vulnerability and how God might call us to do those things. Let's let the Lord weigh us in that. And then friends, for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, I always say this, I'm so glad that you're here. I, keep coming, keep journeying with us. We invite you to consider what we're talking about here and the claims of Jesus and what he's done. But we'll, we'll ask you to let the elements pass. And here's why, because when we partake of these as followers of Jesus, what we're saying is, I believe, I believe through our action of partaking, we are saying we believe that his death and his resurrection have brought us life. And it's a free gift. And we'd encourage you to know that he offers that gift to you. But until such time as you take that gift from him and receive that, we'll, we'll invite you to just let the elements pass so that you're not proclaiming with your actions something you do not believe in your mind and in your heart. So sirs, let's come. We'll take the elements together.